to Fintech Insider Insights, brought to you by 11FS. We're recording this very special show all about Islamic fintech, live from the 11FS offices in WeWork Oldgate, but also in celebration of the fact that it's Islamic Fintech Week, right here, right now in London. I'm Sarah Kashansky, and joining me today to discuss this fascinating area of global finance are Abdul Bassett, co-founder and principal at Ellipsis, Harris Irfan, partner at Gateway and chair of the UK Islamic Fintech Panel, Stella Cox, Managing Director at DD Cap Group and Chair of the City UK Islamic Finance Markets Advisory Group, and Irfan Khan, Founder and CEO of Yielders. So first of all, welcome to the show, everybody. Um, I'm going to go a quick run round and I'm going to ask everybody if you could please introduce who you are and, and what it is you do. Um, I'll start with Abdul because you're kind of an old pro at this. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks for having us. I'm Abdul Bassett. I'm co-founder and principal at Ellipsis, which is a digital structured finance firm. I guess uh, my foray into fintech really started when I uh, helped to set up Innovate Finance, the membership association for UK fintech. Uh, I did that for three and a half years uh, and then left to form Ellipsis. Before that, I spent a decade career in conventional financial services, working predominantly in tier one banks on strategy and technology, uh, latterly in uh, wealth and asset management. Perfect. How about you, Harris? I'm Harris Arfan. I'm an ex-Islamic banker. I set up the Islamic finance teams at Deutsche Bank and Barclays. And uh, for a year now, I've been uh, a freelance consultant and partnering with uh, Gateway, which is a professional services firm in the Islamic economy. And I chair the UK Islamic fintech panel. Perfect. Uh, Irfan, how about you? I'm Irfan Khan, uh, founder of Yielders, the first Islamic fintech to be directly authorised and regulated by the FCA. Uh, my background, much like Abdul's, um, as an accountant working in financial services for over a decade, um, I specialise predominantly within finance transformation, within banking, tier one banks. I made the move into fintech about three years ago, just over three years ago in terms of setting up yielders, um, identified it as being a real need to provide alternative investments into the Islamic economy. And last but by no means least, Stella. Hello, I'm Stella Cox. I'm Managing Director of DDCAP, which is a financial services intermediary firm that covers the Treasury Capital Markets space. Uh, we set that up 20 years ago, colleagues and I with Equity Partnership as well. Before that, for 14 years, I worked for a global investment bank. I was a Treasury Capital Markets Director uh, with Islamic Financial Practice within my remit there. So a wonderfully um, experienced bunch of people. But let's start at the very beginning. So for our listeners and for the uninitiated, how would you define Islamic finance in a way that is, I know that there are huge levels of complexity to any areas of finance, but if you wanted to give an absolute beginner's layperson's definition, how, how would you do that? There's, there's two things that I generally say, first of all. First of all, I say it's about the nature of money. And the second thing I say, it's about the real economy. So the theory is that money is just a medium of exchange in the Islamic economic system. It's not a commodity to be traded. And in the modern financial markets, we see that money is traded in the sense that if I lend you £100 and you pay me £105 back, then I made £5 as interest. And that's trading money. It's a similar story with bonds, with debt and so on. So interest is forbidden because of the nature of money, which is a measure of value in real goods and services. And hence why we talk about the real economy. So an Islamic finance transaction has to have, again, in theory, a one-to-one -one relationship with the underlying commercial transaction, which has a real economy basis. Does anybody want to add to that? 
Um, there's a few core principles whenever I'm explaining Islamic finance to anyone. So uh, one is riba. So the absence. So we're not supposed to be involved in the exchange of interest. So that's as Harris just explained about making money on money. Um, the second is garir and maser. So garir um, is uncertainty. So there's not to be any extensive uncertainty. And maser is speculative investments. And the last is the avoidance of haram. So not getting involved in asset structures that have alcohol or gambling um, and so on. So, and that closely aligns it to ethical investments as well. Okay. I mean, how, how big an industry are we talking here? This is a global industry. So, you know, is, is, can anybody give me an estimate of the size of this industry? It varies. Um, we're talking about an industry which in its contemporary form is, is, is approaching uh, 40 years old and it came from a banking footprint predominantly in the Middle East and has expanded since through Southeast Asia into Europe and beyond. Uh, we see various different assets uh, or asset levels that are attributed to the industry. I, I, I was at an event today where I was hearing um, from experts from uh, the Middle East in particular that it's, 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 it's gone above three trillion dollars at the moment. Okay, I didn't know that. I thought it was still stuck at two, two and a bit. I thought it was as well, but um, I'm going to I'm going to defer to those who say it's a little bit larger. But I think Harris is 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 probably actually at at, at two and a bit plus, probably in the right bracket. So, and that's the global size of the industry. Why are we? And and you mentioned there that it's um, predominantly, well, historically been predominantly Middle Eastern um, and and Southeast Asia. Why are we talking about it in the UK today? Why does the UK have an Islamic Finance Week? How big an industry is it here or, or across Europe? Again, I think Stella is the right person to answer this because she's been one of the pioneers in putting London and the UK on the Islamic finance map globally. So maybe I'm going to defer to you. <laughs> sure. Uh, when the industry started its 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 process of of building, as I mentioned, it, it was it was. It was based upon a, a banking model, which really meant mobilisation of, of liquidity. And so the first fledgling Islamic banks were formed in the Middle East and were mobilising um, consumer deposits and in aggregate looking for eligible assets um, to invest in. Now, I'm going an awfully long way back now when I was working and, and, and most of my colleagues here probably weren't born. But if we go back to the 1980s, those uh, asset supplies were really found through the London market. And so the wholesale Islamic funds were coming to us to um, access physical assets that be, could be bought and sold to generate a profit rather than pure financial contracts. Um, since then, there's been various stages in our growth trajectory, but our authorities here, and particularly the Bank of England, really started to look at Islamic finance at the beginning of this century, really from the perspective of financial inclusion and on the basis that no British Muslim should be precluded by faith um, from financial services in the UK. Uh, and there's been much growth since then. I mean, Harris, you might like to pick up on it so that I'm not I'm not covering the whole of the past 40 years, but that's that's <laughs> that's the first 20 and only I can remember them, as I said. <laughs> That's a perfect start. So what happened in the early 2000s was that the, the big, what they call the bulge bracket investment banks suddenly uh, discovered Islamic finance and they realized there was a lot of money to be made. So they sent uh, people like me out to the Middle East and we set up offices in places like Dubai and the Dubai International Financial Center. And we created investment banking teams that invented all sorts of new and wonderful products, which hadn't been seen before in the Islamic finance markets. And as a result of all those new and wonderful products, the markets took off in an exponential way. So they've been growing fairly steadily over the previous 20 years or so. And all of a sudden, there's this kind of a blip and this 
products like structured investment products and convertible sukuk, which are a type of Islamic bond. Uh, these, these started to be seen in the market in the big banks like Deutsche Bank, uh, JP Morgan, uh, Standard Chartered, HSBC, and even Goldman Sachs realized that there was a lot of money to be made out of these. So up until the global financial crisis, they were very, very active. And when the financial crisis hit, they kind of retrenched and went back to what they knew best. So I think we've kind of touched on on, on a number of areas here. Um, you know, not least, Stefan, you, you are running what I would call a fintech. Um, Sally, you mentioned financial inclusion. Uh, you know, how 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 do you define Islamic fintech? I, I was one of the first people to, to, to try and put some flesh on the bone and really come up with a definition for Islamic fintech. So I, I break it down into three three areas. The first is any fintech or financial technology that is built from the ground up with the Sharia principles in mind and if I'm, you know, outline some of those. The second for me is any conventional fintech adapted um, to serve a uh, to serve the Islamic finance market or, or Muslim majority market. And uh, much like Harris described, the banks who sort of saw the opportunity and uh, restructured what they did and opened up Islamic finance windows, uh, we're starting to see some fintechs uh, do that as well. And then finally, the third is anything that's inherently Sharia compliant so by nature. So things that just don't uh, do any of the things that uh, Islamic finance precludes and uh, by their very nature are Sharia compliant. So can we have a little bit, we haven't we sort of haven't mentioned that term before, Sharia compliance. Um, again, I understand that there is no standard definition of this. One of one of the things that I think um, maybe muddies the water a little when we talk about Islamic finance is there are different Sharia boards in different places that define compliance differently, much like regulators, national regulators. Um, but what are the that there presumably are some basic tenets to, to, to each of those uh, those compliance processes or boards, if you like. So could you give us an idea of what they might be? Let me give it a go. Um, <laughs> we've talked about the, um, the banning of interest because one can't make money on money. So how does one finance a transaction or an asset and make a profit out of it and yet not charge interest? Well, there are some ways to do it with by having a real economy or a real asset underpinning. So, for example, when the UK government decided to launch a sukuk, which is an Islamic bond, rather than issue, as they would a UK gilt, uh, let's say £200 million on the capital markets and then charge an interest rate, a coupon on that, what they say is, well, we have a couple of buildings in Whitehall. Why don't we effectively sell or transfer beneficial ownership of those buildings to the bond investors, the sukuk holders, and then we'll lease it back? And that lease payment, that rental payment is like the coupon, like the interest payment on a bond. So now you have a real asset underpinning and you have a one-to-one relationship between the financial transaction, which is the bond, and the real economy transaction, which is the real estate that used to belong to the government and now belongs to the sukuk holders. So that's generally how an Islamic finance transaction works. There has to be some, some real economy underpinning to it. And there's certain things that need to be avoided. So, for example, as Irfan was saying earlier, gharar, which is uncertainty. Um, I can't enter into a transaction with you which has undue uncertainty. So I can't say to you, for example, I'll pay you £100 if Manchester United beat Liverpool tomorrow because there's too much uncertainty in that transaction. That's a form of gambling, if you like. Um, but I can enter into a transaction where we have some form of mathematical certainty between us. And as long as both parties are aware of what they're going to get out of the transaction, that's a halal transaction. We also want to avoid certain industries. So we don't want to be involved in the industry of producing alcohol or gambling or pornography or uh, various other vice industries which 
uh, are forbidden in Sharia law. So, um, and, and halal mean, just means compliant. Correct. That's the correct term for it. Um, so it sounds to me like technology makes all of that a lot easier. Would that be to tie into this kind of fintech principle that Abdul's talking about? If, if you're trying to um, develop these these products that do things in a certain way, for example, that are one-to-one uh, relationships, if you like, technology facilitates that? Is that does that help? Well, well if, you look at, if you look at where fintech really took off in the conventional fintech space, it was really the peer-to-peer crowdfunding, um, verticals that, that really came to the fore early on and that was because they do all of these things that we're talking about they they cut out middlemen they make things more transparent and it's no it's no surprise that uh, those were the areas in which Islamic fintech really took off as well so are there uh, and some, not just in the UK globally are there some peer-to-peer or crowdfunding platforms that are halal without without trying to be uh, you mentioned earlier there are some products yeah, which so are anything already... That's, anything that's equity crowdfunding would by its, by its very nature be halal. But, you, you'd, I mean, you'd have to look at the legality of the contract and uh, things like preferential equity rights uh, and, and dilution rights and things like that, which you'd have to go through, you know, in minutiae to just understand whether they were wholly Sharia compliant. But in principle, those sorts of, you know, equity-based products uh, tend to be Sharia compliant. So there's actually not much difference between some of the fintech products that we're used to seeing and, and a Sharia compliant one. It's not my, my point here as I'm driving it's not difficult to make things work in this industry. It's not like we have to go away and build entirely new things from scratch here. Yeah, I think it's the I think it's the viewpoint of when you're starting off. So if you're doing it with the intention of trying to develop something that would be Sharia based or Sharia compliant, then you'll design the business, the operating model, as well as the technology to facilitate and deliver that end product. And that's that's the difference really. So you're either going to have to unwind that, which might mean having to change part of your operating model, the way you're generating your fee structures, the way you've done your legal contracts and so on, um, which may be a fundamental shift in terms of how you've created your business. Um, whereas if you've done it from the outset in terms of creating something that's a Sharia based business and um, then you've done it with that in mind and it's far easier to deliver so when we're talking about sort of driving the growth of these these types of business it sounds to me like it might be easier to do that somewhere like the middle east where there is a lot of understanding of what is sharia compliance so is that where we see a lot of fintech activity um in in islamic finance or is actually am i completely wrong about that because i'm happy to be completely yeah, wrong about I, it. actually and, and this is something that surprised all of us um lo- this time last year as part of um uh, the same uh, set of conferences um I, I helped to landscape the islamic fintech space globally and we found 110 firms which self-identified as being uh, islamic fintechs of which the largest number was in malaysia which you might expect mm-hmm. uh, but what we didn't expect was the second highest number was in the uk Uh, And that was because we have not only a booming fintech sector, um, we have a a, a lead position in financial services generally, we have an Islamic finance specialism. And so we we kind of had the melting pot with the talent, the tech um, and the financial services infrastructure uh, for all that to come together. And you found... Uh, many more entrepreneurs like Gerfan who'd been, uh, you know, setting up their businesses for a number of years. And so now the UK is really seen as a very neutral um, business-friendly place to set up an Islamic finance firm, whether it's fintech or uh, or not. And uh, for that reason, we think that there is a natural advantage to setting up a, a firm here because you are not uh, you're not then seen as being from a specific Muslim country, but uh, you're applicable to all uh, M- Muslim countries and non-Muslim countries as well. So it, it, to, to pick up on that, I mean, obviously to operate in the UK, you have to be FCA 
compliant um for retail customers for retail customers yet um how would you make sure that you are also sharia compliant in the uk is there a my question is is there a board in the do we have a uk board i mean this is no there isn't actually so and this is part of the challenge so how do you create an islamic finance institution um if you don't have a sharia board or you don't have some official stamp so it's not like in malaysia where you can actually go to a regulatory authority and get some kind of an approval so um, one of the key challenges were the costs of having a Sharia board. So it's not cheap having a Sharia board. So how do you design a business model that's Sharia-based or Sharia-compliant without having a Sharia board? Um, so then we had to, it took us roughly about a year and a half to develop a business model um, dealing with the regulators as well as dealing with lawyers that had Sharia backgrounds. And also um, we are engaged with UK IFC who supported us through it um, and did a process review and an audit review and then also we had to um, engage with different sheikhs as well in order to design the operating model to review the legal contracts um, and the minutia, as Abdul mentioned earlier. In so terms the standard of, fintechs think they've got compliance exactly. tangles. But you got one extra layer of compliance on top. Yeah. It was doing that all alongside doing the regulatory approval as well. So it's, it was almost two layers um, to go through in order to develop something um, that was actually Sharia-based. Ours, ours is a slightly different experience because I said that our firm's been around for 20 years and it was a quite a unique model in itself. But if you've heard some of the, the descriptions of, of, of how, how we operate in terms of our transactional process, there are some complexities around it that make our, our transaction stream quite laborious, particularly when they were manual. And probably some 15 years ago or so, we started to talk to our clients and, and our business is very much the wholesale markets, bank to bank, financial institution to financial institution. And there were some suggestions that we should start to try to automate the processes. And we, by that stage, had a majority shareholder who's very familiar with building um, technology um, for for the financial services sector and the sort of space that we worked in. And actually, our initial inquiry came from the scholastic community. In fact, some some sheikhs in Abu Dhabi who said, you're aggregating, we have such huge volumes, it would be really nice to do something that was automated. But that was quite tough at the time. Um, and And really, although there was a will and an inclination, actually managing that and working between international markets and also trying to work out how we'd w- we would move from manual to automated process and um, you know, work in environments where perhaps wet ink signatures were still prevailing and so on. You know, it's, those were the sort of challenges. And literally, it took us 12, 13 years to, to roll out our model. And I think in terms of our institutional sort of interbank transactional flow, by 2015, we were 30% automated. And then within the 18 months after that, we moved up to 98%. So it shows that there was a a bit of a step change. We have our own Sharia board. Historically, we've worked as an intermediary institution with Sharia boards of our institutional clients, but for various different reasons and our own good reputation. About six or seven years ago, we thought, you know, we're going to build things like our platform, which is called Ethos. We're going to work with our clients. We'll work in new markets. There are new there's new engagement to be had. So we, we, we convened our own Sharia board and there's a cost to doing that as well. And so, so this is, this is an area where we're starting to see fintech think about it differently. So Irfan's quite a pioneer in this space, having done 
the Shuri compliance round yielders differently. Now what we're starting to see is a lot of global fintech firms, when they look at entering the Middle East and think about their Sharia compliance, they're actually going to institutions that exist outside of the UK. So things like the Sharia Review Bureau in Bahrain, who are... Uh, auditing these firms and um, and a lot, a lot of times it's the first time they've looked at a technology like this. So for example, uh, just a few months ago, uh, Stella, the blockchain company, received their Sharia certification from the Sharia Review Bureau in Bahrain. And it's the first time that a blockchain platform and a cryptocurrency has been Sharia, uh, Sharia approved. Uh, and it, so it was quite a steep learning curve for the Shuru Review Bureau as well to upskill themselves and understand the technology in order to be able to carry out that audit and compliance check. Imagine a new era of banking defined by an end-to-end digital platform that is open, packaged, and upgradable. Harnessing real-time data to enrich client lives. Adopting the cloud to increase speed, agility, and scale. Using APIs to create platforms and ecosystems that redefine value in a world of open banking. It's time to reshape banking. Temenos, with 25 years of experience spanning 3,000 banks in over 150 countries, helps banks achieve their digital vision faster. So, so we've talked there about um, some of the challenges that the entrepreneurs have to face and people wanting to set up these companies, but what challenges or problems are you helping to solve when you get there so what keeps you you going through the end other end i mean obviously if you're an entrepreneur then you think you're going to make some money you think you're going to build a successful business and, you, and you'd like a challenge um but you know what problems is this is this islamic fintech in particular helping to solve we mentioned financial inclusion maybe we could go into that a little bit further um you know uh it, i think with the investment products maybe that's an area that um muslims have been excluded from and now they can participate more fully is, is that is that the kind of thing we're seeing develop sure i mean we, we're as, as I said, we're institutional, but as we've built our platform, and I'll, I'll defer to to the others afterwards because they have quite different perspectives, probably from ours, which comes from a. T- it's a traditional space in in the Islamic marketplace. What has been really interesting is is to look at new opportunities. So we've moved from a completely inst- institutional footprint into building in um, other other capability that will connect our institutional clients to the corporate market through to SME and then ultimately into its retail consumer base. And and for us, the focus there is on inclusion and probably using what is an enabling platform to reach unbanked markets. And and there are a lot of those in our wider industry. Let me give you another example of, of financial inclusion. Um, something that I'm, I'm very privileged to be observing right now is a project uh, by IFRC, the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies, they have developed a blockchain technology uh, to monitor the progress of blood donation in Pakistan. It's a fantastic project. And this actually encompasses a much wider idea of the Islamic economy, not just Islamic finance or Islamic banking, but, you know, charity, uh, zakat, which is the wealth tax in Islamic law, in waqf, which is a form of endowment. This is all part of the kind of a holistic Islamic economic system, which is intended to ensure, uh, you know, equ- uh, wealth distribution throughout society. And I think using blockchain technology to monitor blood donations in Pakistan is a fantastic example of a Sharia compliant fintech enabled uh, product. 
So if you uh, if you actually take a step back in terms of just looking at fintech and what was the catalyst and the driver for fintech to succeed or grow to what it is today, it's because of the lack of alternatives in conventional finance. And I think that's what the key motivation is right now for the practitioners within the fintech space is to continue to create new products. And it's those new products and alternatives, especially in the Islamic finance economy, which drives us and what we're trying to do. So there's so many different opportunities um, to take advantage of within the Islamic finance space from insurance, from investments, from SME lending, um, mortgage products, current accounts. The opportunities are, are quite substantial, really. I think... Islamic finance in the first you know 40, 40 years of its existence has done really well in the institutional space and uh, you know Stella's been a, a big driver of that in in the UK with everything that her and her firm have done. I think in the retail and commercial banking space, I think we've been largely underserved and that's not just a UK problem in the UK we have one retail Islamic bank and that doesn't really lend lend itself to much choice for the consumer. What do people do just to, to interrupt you there? Sorry. So, I like mean, a- yeah, you know, as a, as a Muslim consumer, if you want to buy your house, um, what are your options? You can either not buy your house um, because you can't get an Islamic mortgage. You can take an Islamic mortgage through the one bank that offers it. Um, although, uh, you know, depending on who you speak to, people tend to think it's either okay or it's not fully Sharia compliant and they have their own views on it. Or you take a conventional mortgage like everyone else. And so you're, you're really, you know, you're, you're, you're in, in this conundrum where uh, you aren't being served. But then, you know, we're, we're the fortunate ones. If you look around the world and you look at the unbanked population around the world and depending on whose stats you, you, you ascribe to, um, you know, the World Bank says there's 1.7 billion adults uh, that are un- unbanked around the world. And a large majority of those are in Muslim countries. And that problem is only going to be compounded over the next few years with uh, a lot more um, demographic growth in those regions. So, you know, Islamic finance, as much as it's done, has really not served the retail population. And I think tech is really starting to now move us into Islamic finance version two. We're seeing a different set of entrepreneurs coming in who think digital first and are looking to launch services for that underserved segment or unserved segment. Um, and I think that's that's also translating back to the UK in that we're now starting to see uh, a number of parties looking seriously at developing digital challenger, Islamic challenger banks for the UK market. We've just had the first one launched in Europe by a Turkish bank in Germany uh, to serve the uh, Turkish diaspora in Germany. And they, amongst other people, have aspirations to you know, uh, launch these services across Europe, including in the UK. So um, that sort of bring, brings us to a point where we can kind of bring um, Islamic finance and I suppose conventional finance back together. So presumably there's nothing that precludes non-Muslims from using these these products. There's no, there's no rule that says not. So one of the things that kind of instantly springs to mind uh, when, when I look hear about the principles you've just described and even you mentioned it is sort of ethical and social investing. Now that's that's a growing trend amongst younger people everywhere, whether they're Islam, uh, whether they're Muslims or not. So is that an area that you think can really help drive the Islamic finance? its industry and fintech industry that other other areas can sort of benefit from, if you like? Yeah, very much so. I actually think that the Islamic banking industry missed a trick because the global financial crisis was a demonstration that if you allow the financial economy to get out of hand through the production of, you know, what Adair Turner described as socially useless uh, banking activity, then, you know, that's the result. And um, And actually, Islamic banking could have stepped up at that point and said, hey, guys, we've actually got a real economy basis for our financial transactions here. And that means that we're all about wealth creation, job creation, real economy, real assets, 
a one-to-one relationship between the financial economy and the real economy. So no useless CDO-queued papers, you know, flying around out there, which are liable to bring you down one day. And that trick was missed. But as Abdul says, this is almost Islamic Finance 2.0 right now. And we have an opportunity again to show people of any faith and no faith that there is something good and universally applicable in Islamic finance. We don't even have to call it Islamic finance. We can call it, I don't know, participation banking or, you know, ethical banking, although it's a little bit more sort of ethical plus, uh, because I think people have generally accepted that the nature of money is to make money out of money. And the whole point of this is, you know, money is a very, very particular type of of, uh, concept. I mean, maybe there's, um, I think there's a move here as well. If you're talking about the modern brands, the modern entrepreneurs, you sort of, I think people have a tendency to forget that there are many chain restaurants in the UK, for example, which are halal. So you don't have to stamp Sharia compliant or halal on the front. If it's there, then the people who are who are concerned about that know it's there. But presumably you could just launch, you know, as you say, an ethically compliant investment platform or, or anything I think, else. I think that's a really important point. And we were very conscious of that right from the outset. We didn't want to create a brand or a product trying to pigeonhole ourselves as being just an Islamic finance institution. For me, the real test and the success of the business model is if it's the inverse and there's more non-Muslims on the platform than there are Muslims on the platform. That means that they're coming to the platform because of the competitive nature of the returns. And that's really how the business should be measured, not for the fact that it just meets certain ethical principles um, and cultural principles. It's, it's great having a ethical business but if it doesn't succeed then it's problematic. For sure I think none of us work within the UK Islamic banks and, and we have a handful of them but we're, we're hearing from them and we're seeing statistics quite quite regularly with their Sharia compliance savings product. They say they're attracting more non-Muslim savers than otherwise. Now part of that is is again that um, from savers perspective those products fall under financial services compensation scheme so there's uh, there's a protection there and they seem to be competitive in terms of conventional alternatives as well. Yes, so it's a matter of inclusion. I like to think myself because I'm working quite closely to find points of collaboration and 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 eventually convergence between Islamic financial practice and other sustainable responsible investment subsets that there is more of a driver. And actually I think I think there is and I think it is coming from millennials and uh, and and yeah, I've got some different generation. I think that's the key point, really. So one of the the challenges was the adoption of um, the technology. So Generation X, Generation Y, at the moment, there hasn't been a significant great um, amount of adoption. They're more in tune with the conventional banking and finance, whereas on a platform like ours, over 70% are all millennials. Now, as those millennials start to get more and more um, disposable income, it's only natural that those sorts of platforms will get larger and larger. Um, So that's really where the opportunity is, this new generation. So the previous generation that were partly unbanked didn't have a great deal of exposure to Islamic finance products at the retail level. Um, In some cases, hardly any Islamic finance products at retail level. Now, all of a sudden, there's now new products coming onto the market. The new generation are now starting to adopt them. And then you'll only start to see that grow even further. So I think that's um, a great point for me to sort of ask my final question of this of this roundtable, which is, although I could talk about this for hours because I find it endlessly fascinating, if you could give one message to the conventional players, we've talked about you know them a lot today, um, whether they're banks or whether they're fintechs, um, as to why they should have a look at Islamic fintech, what would you tell them? I think we sort of talked about them in, in detail, um, maybe some of the the ideas you might have for this today, but like if you can boil that down to a message, what, what would you what would you give them? 
If I can give that message to uh, Stella, just said that we're not uh, neither none of us are working at Islamic banks. I used to work in an Islamic bank. So after the Bulls Bracket firms, I worked for a, a British Islamic bank, and the culture is well, it's 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 pretty backwards. My message to the Islamic banks would be: you need to adapt or die. Um, and if you don't embrace Islamic fintech and don't just see it as an enabler, but as a disruptor, if they don't see it as that, they're really going to struggle. And I don't think their models are going to be sustainable in the next ten years. I take a slightly different perspective. I don't disagree with Harris at all, but I'm I'm a cautious middle-aged woman that's looking at, at stepping stones to get to the ultimate objective. And I've mentioned a lot of our clients are banks, Sharia-compliant banks, but also conventional banks that have very evolved Sharia-compliant practices. And actually, in terms of technology, they are listening to this because their aspirations are to grow their market. And some see that actually their market is 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 geared more towards Muslim-majority countries than it is elsewhere. And that's where the opportunity is. And and technology is is the way that they're going to do that. So I think it's a step in the in the right direction in terms of new technologies and taking a completely forward thinking approach and looking at the UK, I think we're probably the market for that. And I completely agree with what, what Harris says and, and, and with the work that Abdul and, uh, and Irfan are doing as well. Uh, I can give you 1.6 billion reasons as to why um, <laughs> they should stand up and take notice in a market that is significantly underserved and is a large population of the global earth. Why not just go in there and go after that market? I think for the conventional fintech players, I think it's an idea that's come of its time. Um, I've had the pleasure over the last few years, much like Harris had uh, a little while ago, working in the Middle East and uh, setting up, you know, the, f the first set of infrastructure for Islamic finance. I I've had the pleasure of working with a number of the Middle East jurisdictions on their fintech strategy um, with the regulators and free zones, etc. And there is significant interest in moving their financial services sectors forward with fintech um, and it's it, it's not just cursory lip service there is some you know serious uh, regulatory and government and financial strides being taken uh, to support firms now is a great time to look at markets like the gcc in malaysia uh, and that's a great starting point for accessing that 1.6 billion um, muslim population around the world that everyone's talking about Perfect. Well, watch this space, definitely. So that wraps up today's discussion. Thank you so much to all my guests for joining me. Uh, where can people find out more about you, Abdul? Uh, on Twitter, Abdul H. Bassett. <laughs> Harris? You can read my book, Heaven's Bankers. And where would people find that? Is that Amazon? Amazon, but I prefer Waterstones. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Stella, how about you? Look us up on ddcap.co.uk. And how about you, Efan? You can get in touch with me or visit our website at www w.yielders.co.uk Brilliant. And as for me, you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Koshansky. Join in the discussion by tweeting us at Fintech Insiders. Remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And to really make our weeks, please, please leave us a review. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye.